All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Habakkuk chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, Jen and I were in Roanoke this past week, and we were coming back uh, towards Rocky Mount, and uh, we remember that there's a new establishment in Roanoke that has recently been built to the glory of God called Krispy Kreme Donuts. Uh, Can I get a witness? All right. And I asked Jen, I said, do you mind if we go buy Krispy Kreme? And Jen's very, she's a great cook, very health conscious. And she said, Jeff, I draw the line at donuts, but you can go get some. So I was like, you know, more for me. So, so we swing through the drive-through, uh, Krispy Kreme and, and we get, you know, a dozen, dozen glazed donuts. And some of y'all are already getting fired up about this. And, and, uh, we were pulling out of the parking lot. She's like, did you already eat one? And I mean, it just happened, you know, when you have Krispy Kreme donuts. And I kid you not, this is not a preacher story, but before the time that we made it from Krispy Kreme in Roanoke to Rocky Mount, I had already eaten six <laughs> Krispy Kreme donuts. And it's that, it's that old adage that some of us have heard before that sin is pleasurable for a season. But then after that, you reap the consequences. And it was that time at, at the donut experience, for those of you that are donut people, that you said, this has been so awesome. And I had some, you know, some cold water and just throwing the donuts down that judgment day came. And, and, and I, I thought about it. I said, this may be the closest thing that a man could ever experience to being pregnant because literally you have something inside your body that is just expanding outward. And so... By the next day, I had the whole dozen. They were just gone. But I thought about that in my pain and my misery. And I said, you know, if you've ever done that with any type of sugary, empty calorie food that does nothing for you but limit your lifespan and make you enjoy it while you're eating it, it doesn't satisfy. And when you OD on junk food, and the sugar has run through your system, you don't feel good, but you should be full because you're full, but what you're full of doesn't satisfy. And I was thinking about Habakkuk chapter 2, and you have this picture that God gives the prophet Habakkuk. He gives this picture of this nation, the Babylonians, which we talked about several weeks ago, and they are devouring the whole ancient Near East. They've thrown off the Assyrians. The Assyrians ruled that area of the world for hundreds of years. No one can stop the march of the Babylonian juggernaut. These were stormtroopers before the Nazis. These guys, if you look in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, it's like no one can stop them. It says that their own God is their strength. Their strength is their own God. Meaning, they don't have anybody to oppose them. This is before Navy SEALs, this is before the Marine Corps. This is a time in history to where tyrants ran across the whole face of the earth. There wasn't law as we know it. There was the Code of Hammurabi, but that really elevated property above people. You had the Jews, and they were so small in number that they were all huddled in Jerusalem, not able to really even defend themselves. So what are you going to do? If you're Habakkuk, you cry out to God and say, God, help me make sense of this. And God gives him in chapter 2, verse 4, look at it with me. He says, this is the key to staying faithful even when it doesn't seem that God even hears your prayers. The Bible says, behold, his soul is puffed up. 
It is not upright within him. Meaning, God says, look around at all of the people who are living their lives to say, God, you will never hold me accountable. I will do what I want when I want. God says, look at them and see that their soul is puffed up. And there will be a day that they will be drawn low, brought low. But look at the last part of verse 4. But the righteous or the just shall live by his, help me out church, by his faith. And we looked at last time we met that faith is not checking your brain at the door. Faith is not saying, well, I'm going to become a follower of Christ. I'm going to, going to truly put my faith in him. So therefore, I no longer think. No, what it actually means is you take the evidence for God and you believe that he does exist. But faith is when I actually ask him to do something for me. You see, the difference is sometimes people can say, I believe that this building that we're meeting in had a designer. But if... I want the designer and the builder to do something for me. Then I have to put my faith in the designer's character. And so there's the difference for a lot of people today. Some of us, we think that faith is something like we say, well, I've got a big faith. Well, if the faith is in the wrong thing, does it do anyone any good? I can get on the plane thinking I'm going to New York, but if the plane's actually headed to L.A., I can have great faith that we're on the way to the Big Apple, but we're actually on the way to California. So for us to understand what faith is, faith is trust. It is trust in the character of God and the revelation of God through the Bible. Meaning that sometimes when we encounter things in our lives that make us doubt that God is there or that God cares... Even when it seems that it's not the case, we believe what God has already shown us about who he is. And we talked last time about emotions. Some of us are more susceptible to emotions than others. Some of you, some of you, if you're watching a football game and you just go, go team, you are on the verge of a heart attack. You just never show emotion. That's the way God is, has wired. And some, you just exude emotion. And if we don't understand the difference between emotion and truly placing our faith in Christ, what we'll begin to feel is that however we feel, that's the way that things actually are. Does that make sense? Like I wake up and it doesn't seem like God cares. It doesn't seem like the marriage is going to get worked out. It doesn't seem like he, so forth and so on. If we go on that, that's not faith. That's going on simply feelings that may or may not have any bearing to reality. So for us, feelings aside... Or whether we feel great about our relationship with Christ. Faith is simple obedience and trust in the character of God. And if we can stop for just a moment and we can probably all say, isn't that a little bit difficult? Amen? Just a little bit because sometimes the things that you see and the things that you feel may not line up with the word of God. So then it comes to a willful, volitional choice of the will to say, God... I can't do this with my own strength, but I'm going to make a judgment call and trust you that you know more than what my emotions tell me. Because we could preach sermon after sermon after sermon that say if we live based upon how we feel, that's going to be one jacked up life. Can I get a witness? Man, we feel like letting our family members have it. We feel like emoting on Facebook. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Facebook is not your journal. I'm, I'm dead serious. 
It's amazing what we put on social media and we do it in such a way that I'm like, man, that should, a lot of that stuff should be relegated to accountability partners, people that we meet with and pray with, close friends or, or, or spiritual mentors. That stuff should not be put out there for the whole world to see because what it tells people is you say you're a follower of Christ, but you deal with your junk in the same way that I deal with mine. So what's different? And we live in an emotive culture. It's all about how we feel. It's all about how we are made to feel. Rather than asking the question, what is actually true? That's where Christianity divides the Red Sea from everything else. Christianity is not about feelings, emotion, but it's about what is true. But here's the beautiful part. That when we make those difficult choices of obedience to live by faith, all right. When we begin to obey and the daily things saying, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't feel this way. I don't feel like doing the right thing, but I know that you are real. So I'm going to trust you and obey you. The emotions follow after that. That's why Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. That's like, we know that we should give to missions, but we don't, we don't really want to give. But what Jesus says is, if you act out of obedience and support the things that I see are important, your heart follows that. So obedience always follows, obedience always precedes the emotions. Because sometimes we have this objection when we see in the Bible, the just should live by faith. We say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey God. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to show up at Sunday school. I don't want to give to missions because I know that my heart is not right. According to Jesus, we obey in the weak times and we obey in the strong times. You see? That's where that consistency starts. We read the Bible. We say we cry out to God even when it seems like we don't want to. Even when it feels that way. And what we will find is in those times of drought, when the roots of our faith go deep into the character and the heart of God, that's when it becomes strong. And this morning in Sunday school, we looked at an amazing message from John chapter 15 about the vine uh, be, and, and, and the, the branch being a part of the tree. And Jesus saying that apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's very easy sometimes in the good times for us to have surface roots. Because there's not the necessity, what we feel, to go deep within the character and the heart of God. But I just want to encourage you, if you're walking through a time in which things don't make sense, maybe somewhat like Habakkuk. In the Old Testament... And it's a funny name that you would allow your obedience to Christ in the little things when emotions tell you don't do it. You say, I'm going to obey regardless of how I feel. And God will bring you out of that valley because out after every valley, there's a mountaintop. So that was last week's message. That's setting the stage. Now what God told him is live by faith. Even when it seems that God doesn't even hear. And so what we want to do now is, is unpack verse by verse, as far as we can go, word by word, what God is saying to those who would abuse people and those who would run roughshod over families in order to bring about selfish gain. Notice what it says in verse number five. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is his wife as Sheol or the grave. Like death, he never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Notice verse six. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long and loads himself with pledges. Now let's do a little bit of that explanation right here. And when you see that three-letter word in the Bible, W-O-E, it's referring to looking at a person and saying, there is going to be the worst imaginable thing happen to you. Woe for you. Terrible it will be for you. It's not a very encouraging part of the Bible. Unless you're under the thumb of oppression. And so what we see here is this nation of the Babylon, the Babylonians, they're trying to be successful. They're trying to gain the whole world. And here's, here's the driving thought that we want to hammer home today. That, that taking false, quote unquote, shortcuts to success, whether it be in relationships or business, Taking false shortcuts to success, those never satisfy, but they simply bring emptiness. And every single one of us has been tempted at one time or another to cut corners and to get to that point to where we are thought of as awesome. You remember back when, when we were in middle school, and some of you middle schoolers may, may realize this, when we, when we realize you know, the bodies are changing, some people are thought of as cool, some people are thought of as talented, some people are thought of as strong or attractive, and that thought comes to say, what, a, what do I have to do to be successful? Do you ever think anything like that? Like, what do I have to do to be accepted? What do I have to do to really be respected? And throughout most of history, you know the way that you got that? You killed people. Seriously. When you look back at history, before before there was really law as we know it, before there was capitalism, the way that you got things and you gained notoriety is you got as many people as you could on your side. You armed them, you trained them, and then you started killing other people. Alexander the Great is called the Great. Why? Because history at that time called him great because he killed more people than anybody else. And maybe it would be a good time in history to stop calling the killers great. Think about it. Great columnist Walt Williams said that it was only capitalism. For the first time in history, capitalism allowed one to become wealthy by serving his fellow man. And in that day, if you had something that was great, an invention people would come and take it. You had to surround yourself with bigger thugs than the other people. So it was a a time in which inventions, and and we could say economic productivity was at a low because it was simply every spring, even in David's time, the kings would go to war. Because you say, well, if we don't go to war, then we're going to get raided by the others. The context of this is a time in which the only way you became famous and successful is you stole or you took what other people had. And right before we really get into this, let's just say um, that most of us live in what's called an American bubble. The American bubble, most of us have never really been under threat of having armed people come through our neighborhoods and burn the houses to the ground. We, 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 never, we ne- never have had that. In fact, some of you are like, bring it on. You know, I've got my gun waiting for you. Well, we've, we've, ne- we've never understood the concept of having to huddle together in small groups, hiding in the woods, hiding in the caves, to escape truckloads upon truckloads 
of Islamic militias coming through with everything from truck-mounted uh, machine guns to RPGs to AK-47s to grenades to machetes and not being able to do a thing about it. The only thing you could do is hide. And when the land becomes overrun with the enemy, there's only so many places you can hide. We can't even begin to conceive that. Because in America, we do have the Second Amendment, you have the the right to protect yourself, and we have the military, and we have the state police, and the National Guard, and the local police, and then we've got our mamas. So, in order for us, this not to be strange and awkward, I want us as best we can for these few minutes we have remaining, to try to put ourselves in the state of mind of these people who had no defense. And maybe that would help us when we read Voice of the Martyrs. And and by the way, if if you're unfamiliar with that, go to vom.org, vom.com, Voice of the Martyrs. It's a, a ministry that helps persecuted Christians around the world. That if we do this and we ask God to give us His heart, that we would understand better what it means to be a historic Christian. You see, the American Christian experience is not normal. Y'all realize that? Every single one of us, unless you live really close, came here in a vehicle. Maybe there's somebody on a horse. Maybe a motorcycle. We came here in, in heated vehicles to come to a heated building in the middle of winter. And we can go eat at home or here or in the choir room or or El Rio or wherever it is after the service. And, and we have all of these rights, all of these things that we can appeal to, all of these safety nets. But for most Christians in the past, that didn't even exist. All you had was Christ. In the Old Testament, all that these believers had was their faith in God and the Messiah who would come. So before we just gloss over this and we say, great, it's one of these minor prophets. It's a boring story in the Old Testament about people and dates and places that I really don't know about and don't care about. May God rescue us from a selfish reading of the Bible. We should be be very real this morning. And we believe in application at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. We believe that the scripture has application to every area of life. But may God forgive us when we come to the word of God and we say, I've got to get something for me, something for me, something for me, for my day and my work week. God can give that, but we come to scripture to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And it may just be that what we get for us out of scripture is to be thankful for the freedoms that we have here in the USA. And it may just be that what we get for helping us get through the work week, which, by the way, we're not putting down those who struggle with depression. We want to be of help. We're not putting down those who who deal with baggage in the past. But I think it's very, very helpful if you call yourself a follower of Christ, as I do, for us to take a look at how most people have lived who have had faith in God. And it is not a pretty story. We read Hebrews chapter 11 about these heroes of the faith that said that many of them went around clothed in rags. Clothed in rags. Clothed in rags. Like if you had anything, you would trade it in for clothes so you could change out of rags. But these people were hunted. They were abused. They were maligned. And for some of us to think, 
or having a rough work week, maybe it would help us to have a better perspective if we actually came to God's word and said, God, would you change my heart so that I can begin to pray for people that I may have never met? And would you change my heart over what I see in the Bible so that I wouldn't come to it first off as we in American culture do every, listen, literally, we do every single other thing and we say, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? When we come to the word of God, let us, let our hearts be humbled. So out of that American bubble, we go into this ancient Hebrew bubble to where there are all these short false cuts that lead to emptiness. And notice what he hammers there on in verse five. He says, he speaks of wine as a traitor. This is where it gets interesting in your Bible study, um, because the, there, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then the Greek Septuagint. And the way that the Hebrew is organized here is that this could mean wine or it could mean wealth. There's just some uh, a lack of clarity there because you have two different manuscripts that seem to say uh, something different. Now, let's take a break right here and say that this does not, when you have textual issues, it is not an argument against the inerrancy of the Bible. In fact, the fact that we have more manuscripts of the Bible than any other ancient document means that we have more ability to study the text. But here's the interesting thing. Whether we're reading this as wine or wealth, both are a traitor. You say, Jeff, why would you mention this on Sunday morning? Because some of you have Bibles that would say wine and some would say wealth. The point in Habakkuk is actually both, because here's the thing, let's talk about alcohol for just a moment. Aren't you glad you came to Rocky Mount Baptist this morning? We're getting to all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, wine and alcohol was a foundational pillar of Babylonian society. In fact, when Babylon fell, get this, what was the king doing? Anybody remember? They sent for all of those items, all of those utensils they had taken from the temple, and they brought them in, and they had, I mean, a Budweiser commercial of a party. I mean, it was game on. And the very night that Babylon fell, Belshazzar and all of his leaders were hammered, stupid, drunk. And notice if you have your Bible over in verse number 15 of chapter 2 in Habakkuk. This is so interesting. It says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. A part of Babylonian culture was that you had an empty religion. There was no forgiveness, no grace. You had an empty government. It was all cruelty. So if you've got an empty life and you've got an empty religion and you're pursuing empty things, namely conquest and slaughtering innocent people, if you're pursuing emptiness and all you get is emptiness, it's like having an IV of Krispy Kreme donuts. So here's the thing. What do people do who live empty lives and pursue empty things? They get emptiness. And all of us know at one time or another in our life, if Christ was not there, when we pursue emptiness, there seems to be, I've got to have something to smother this down. Can we be real this morning? And so here's the picture. In Babylonian culture, there was so much emptiness, there was so much wrong that was committed, you've got to have a way to deal with that. And so in their culture, alcohol was a, was a go-to. Not only was it a go-to for themselves, but they used alcohol as a weapon to take down other people. 
So we could say this, when a person or a culture does not respond to the grace of God and they don't reach for the Bible, they reach for the bottle. Okay? And if you struggle with that, Jesus can free you. And his church, Rocky Mount Baptist, wants to help. Amen, folks? Amen. This is not something, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of beer jokes out there and things uh, we, we, we laugh at and we really think about it, but alcohol in our culture has so many people captured. And this is from the alcohol uh, industry. They, they said in, in 2010, there was a $400 billion dollar beverage alcohol industry. Four hundred billion. There's one man who told me, he said, he said, if you watch uh, the beer companies, he says, whenever the economy goes down, our profits go up. There's a correlation. Because when you're down and you're empty and you're living an empty life, you've got to have something to fill it. We have a conscience and the conscience bothers us, does it not? But if you've ever been caught, or maybe you're caught in that trap this morning, you say, well, I will self-medicate. It doesn't make the problem go away. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to, and this is as your pastor and as your friend, you need to reevaluate your view of alcohol if that's a part of your life. You say, Jeff, are you telling us that the Bible says thou shalt not drink? No, there's never a verse in there that says that. But what I'm telling you this morning is why would you, why would you so, so many Christians that I talk to, it's like there's not even a problem with them. Like, man, I have friends that I talk to that are, they're, they're, they're bound. So why are we so flippant about it? The question for a follower of Jesus Christ is not, is it a sin? As John Piper said, that is the lowest question we can possibly ask. That's like, what can I do and stay out of hell? Seriously. But rather the question for those of us who follow Christ and want to make much of Christ, we want to be Christ's example is to say, how can this, as a part and a staple of my life, how can this help people come to Christ? So as your pastor and as your friend, this is not using the Bible as it's not meant to be used. I'm asking you, if that is a part of your life and you're plugged in here at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, to get alone with the Lord and read through the Scriptures, look around at friends and family and co-workers that we have that are so caught in this trap and seek the face of the Lord in regards to alcohol. Stonewall Jackson even said this. He said, I'm more afraid of alcohol than of all the bullets of the enemy. And if you've been around it, you know what it can do, the abuse uh, of alcohol. We okay? All right, let's keep keep going with the time that we have left. Notice there in verse number seven, it says, "Will your debtors suddenly will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them." What God is saying is that a life that is pursuing empty things, using people, there's going to be payday someday. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man, the violence. To the earth, to the cities who, and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. What God is saying here is that in that day and time, what made you famous was what actually caused God's judgment to come. And maybe we as 21st century Christians and American Christians and followers of Christ, we need to take a step back and reevaluate what success actually is. 
realize that one of the things that God could use in our life is the loss of a job, loss of health. We do realize that. Remember this past summer when my back was just, I was like, Lord, take me. I heard a lady say the other day, she said, Lord, heal me or kill me. And through that time, the Lord taught me so many things about him. I'd be humble. I'm thanking for every single thing that I have. Every breath. And when you have something, when you're able to do what you need to do, and just physically you're not restrained in any way, and then that's taken away, it changes the perspective. And what God is saying here is that these people have taken the lives, they've taken the livelihoods of these people who were innocent. And so the point for us is to say, whenever we are tempted to have dishonest gain, whenever we are tempted to take that shortcut to success, some of you may, you say, Jeff, it would be easier for me just to get out of this marriage. It would be easier for me to just be a little bit shady, like not totally under the shade tree, but just a little bit shady in my work and business. The shortcuts to success, quote-unquote, never, ever satisfy. But notice how this builds in verse number 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people's. Again, you have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. That's a verse for ISIS. Behold, in verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples merely labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? What he's saying here is that those who pursue emptiness to say, God, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. What he's saying is that the emptiness that those people reap comes from God. That's like saying, God, I'm going to plant my life and I'm going to water and I'm going to fertilize with everything that doesn't have to do with you. And what he says is that when those people expect to have a harvest of full grain, expect that everything's going to go right, he says, I give them emptiness and that's from God. Let's take a time out here. The emptiness that some of you may be feeling today with your life could be a gift from God. Realize that. That if we have pursued empty things, if we have pursued selfish living, and we don't have to be a part of ISIS, right? We simply just have to say, God, I'm going to live for myself. Those things, God can bring emptiness through our empty pursuits that shows us that we need to be filled. Can I get an amen? It shows us that we need to be filled. Because notice what verse 14 says, and this is where it all comes to a climax. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, what the Bible's saying is that in the time that we have, in the time that we have, let us live for the glory of God. Let, let, let us live for God and live for Christ. And let, let's do as much as we can with our families to point them to Jesus. Because the Bible says that the culture says this is where meaning and fulfillment is found. It's found through conquest. It's found through getting the next promotion. It's found through simply, for some of us that just like to chill, it's found with just looking forward to Friday night. 
living for the weekend. And you don't have to go get out and get stone drunk. You just have to say, you know what? I want to live so that I can work, so that I can relax. And then I work, and then I relax. But God's saying, I have so much more. Because listen, after we've relaxed, and if there's no purpose and point in the relaxing, now stay with me here, to get back to serving the Lord through grace-driven effort, the relaxation is simply going to bring more emptiness. And the emptiness builds and builds and builds. And again, look with me at verse 13. It says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire? What that's saying is that whether you're building a farm or a business or a family and Christ is not at the center, it says it's all going to burn one day. That's the reason why we, we stress the importance if you have a family just to take some time together and pray. Take some time together to just talk about the Word of God. And be involved in serving people. And he says in the late, the nations would weary themselves for nothing. You see, here's, here's where it all comes to head. In contrast to, in opposition to this type of living that brings emptiness. God's glory, the Bible says in verse 14, will one day fill the earth. The knowledge of his glory. Here's the cool part if you're a follower of Christ. If you surrendered your life to Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and lives with inside you, lives inside you. You become filled with the Holy Spirit. And where did Jesus tell his followers to go? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So being faithful in regards to missions is a way that we can extend the glory of God throughout all the world. You say, well, Jeff, Rocky Mount Baptist Church, we're, we're, we're not on TV. We're, we're, we're not a, we're not a, a mega church. But listen, God has called us to be faithful to bringing the gospel around the world. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And verse 14, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters Cover the sea. You remember last time you've been to the beach, don't you remember to see how the waves just kind of came forward and came back? And, and if you ever tried to build a little dam with sand and how that may work until you get one of those rogue waves, which if you're in Myrtle Beach, a rogue wave is like two and a half foot, you know. And, and that wave just takes down that, that dam and that dike and it goes and it goes. The Bible's telling us that if you go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, five miles in the Pacific Ocean from the surface to the bottom, it is at that point that you could look up if it was even physically possible to survive down there and you say, wow, as much as this water is covering me, the Bible tells us one day, yeah, this should get you excited because it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, meaning that God in some way and in His way is going to bring about a, a, a rejuvenation of the world, is going to bring a time in which evil is judged, in which there will be no more ISIS, there will be no more torture, there will be no more rape, there will be no more children, child soldiers. All of that will be history. And so the question for Habakkuk and the question for us is what are we pouring our lives into until God brings that about? There's the emptiness of selfish pursuits that could be everything from being a pirate in Somalia, which, by the way, the first few verses here deal specifically with land piracy. Or it could just be working, paying taxes, living for the weekend to recline back in a lazy boy and not reaching out 
to people for the glory of God. So how should we take this away? We should filter our daily decisions through that future reality, saying that there is a day in which God is going to come and clean up this mess. And until then, I can experience fullness because I'm plugging my life into what God is calling me to do. So here's our question. What is God calling you to do? Middle of the winter. So glad to see some of y'all braved it when we were supposed to have freezing rain today. Y'all are crazy, and I love it. But seriously, the question is, in the dead of winter, in the frozen blizzard land of Virginia, what, 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 is God, what is God calling us to do? We've got a meeting right after church for a Costa Rica info meeting. A possibility that the Lord would lead us to do a mission trip there again uh, this summer. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we encourage you to come back there. It'll be, um, it'll be in the fellowship hall. And for the rest of us, you say that may be something that God would have for me. But for some of us, we just need to get right with God. Okay? Some of us are living outside of here. The way that we relate to our family, the way that we relate to our friends, we do not represent Christ at all. And we need to get right with God. Can we say that in church? Can we be real? It's very possible for us to do the right thing seemingly, but inside it's all is not well. We cannot sing that song as the choir sang. It is well. Can't do it and not be a liar. But the graciousness and the love of Jesus Christ is here this morning. There's been a time you say, man, Jeff, I've fallen off the wagon. I've fallen off the apple cart. I've fallen off, I've fallen off the whole mountain. But I know what's wrong and I know I need to give my life. I know, I know I need to be forgiven. I know I need to be cleansed. There needs to be just a bringing back together of what my relationship with Christ used to be. That passion, that fervency, that passion for the glory of the Lord.